And if you would, uh, start making your way to 1 Kings chapter 15. Those of you who brought your Bible, 1 Kings 15. That's not too scary. I feel like smaller, it was less scary. Uh, it's almost instinct for us. I, I want to start here this morning with this. It's almost instinct for us that when we get in trouble, uh, we are so fast to try to plead our, our innocence, plead our, our case. It's a normal exchange between a teenager and their parents when, you know, threats of judgment and punishment are in the air. I've heard it a lot. Uh, <laughs> I didn't hear. I didn't know. I was about to. I'll do it right now. Those are the normal excuses that we're ready with when judgment is looming. It's also normal for teenagers to deliver uh, some sort of resume of good deeds when we're trying to get something that they want. Maybe you get an invitation to uh, Magic Mountain with your you know, four friends or whatever, and your mom and dad aren't quite sure if this is a good idea, and then you know, here comes the list of all the stuff you've done. I did all my homework already. Uh, I've, you know, done all the chores you asked me to do, please. I've been so good. I haven't hit my younger sibling in the face in days. I I can, you know, I'm good. I've been saving money. I could pay for this myself, like just on and on it goes. But with the authority in your life, which, you know, your parents are pretty much the only ones on the list right now. I think this is the norm. You run to excuses to get out of trouble and you list your good deeds to receive blessing. The list of authorities in your life will grow. There will be teachers and bosses and you know, perhaps legal authorities, police, I hope not or whatever, but, but pretty much the same will be true as you've interacted with your parents. You'll run to excuses to get out of trouble and you'll list your good deeds to receive blessing. Of course, the greatest authority in our life is God, is our creator, and he's the one who's made us, and he's ultimately the one that we should be most concerned with. And through his word, he wants us to know really just a lot of helpful truth concerning him. He wants us to know that his judgment for sin is a real thing. He's trying to alert us to that throughout the Bible, throughout his word. He's holy and his, his standard is perfection and you and I just can't ever meet that standard. And it's also his blessing of salvation that he wants us to know about through his word. He wants us to know that there is forgiveness and salvation and that's available if you believe in his Son who died for your sin, if you let his perfect righteousness be credited to your life, there is blessing for you. Without it, you will face eternal judgment. With it, you will receive eternal life. And that is what all of us so desperately need. 
Excuses may get you out of trouble with your parents. It may work on your teachers. Enlisting your good deeds may help convince your dad to let you go bowling, but those aren't going to work with God. He wants you to know that excuses won't spare you from his judgment. You're a sinner who needs forgiveness and salvation, and that's only available through Christ. I didn't know isn't going to work. And the salvation that God offers, it just can't be earned by good deeds. Telling God that you've lived a, a good life It's not going to be good enough to earn salvation when you stand before him. You just can't pay for this one by yourself. God wants you to know that no matter what excuses you may have and no matter how good things you might have done for him without belief in his gospel and repentance from your sin, you can't avoid the judgment of God. Without professing that Christ is your Lord and Savior and desiring to live your life for him instead of your sinful self, there will be nothing that you can say to God to change his mind and spare you from judgment. God's judgment, unavoidable, and his gift of eternal life can't be earned. That's what we're going to see this morning, and it's our big idea. Without salvation... Even those who serve God's purposes will face God's judgment. Let me say that a different way. Without being saved, without putting your faith in Christ for salvation, even with a full list of excuses and good deeds, you can't avoid God's judgment. I believe this truth is on display as we come back to 1 Kings this morning. And, you know, we've been in this book now for 15 chapters, and 1 Kings is appropriately named. It has a lot to do with, well, well, kings, and, and kings that have ruled in Israel, and kings who were royalty, and kings in, in Judah. And it's easy to get lost. So I, I got you a, a map. I think this map will be helpful. You just try to understand what's happening here. Before this kingdom split into these two different colors, it was one big kingdom under Solomon's rule. And we kind of went through this a couple weeks ago. First Kings chapter 11, Solomon learns that the kingdom's going to be split in two. His sin cost him the, the, uh, the division of this kingdom. And so God chose one of Solomon's servants to be the king in the north there. And his name was... Jeroboam and the northern tribes crowned Jeroboam as their king. And there's 10 of them, and they go up north. If north is confusing, it's green. If you're colorblind, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe just ask a friend. But uh, Judah and Benjamin, they remain loyal to Solomon's line and Solomon's son named Rehoboam, and their ter- territories, Judah in the south, uh, again, that's, that's the lower one, the orange one. As we've been in 1 Kings chapter 12, we saw that the kingdom was actually divided. And from there, the focus is mainly on Jeroboam in the north. Chapters 12 and 13, we we learn what kind of leader he is. And 
He's not a good one. He creates a false religion and he leads God's people to worship false idols. And that's obviously not good. And then even the end of chapter 13, the effects of God's people being distanced from God and from true worship and from living the way God called them to live, the effects of that are starting to show up. Their disobedience and their sin, it's beginning to really, really affect them in just a short amount of time. In just a few years, God's words being rejected and manipulated and abused. Chapter 14 Jeroboam's son gets deathly sick, and he's looking for like a, a word from God's prophet. He's hoping for good news, and instead he hears from Ahijah some really, really disturbing news. All that evil that we saw in chapter 12 and 13, all that wickedness in the sight of God is about to be judged. The way that he rejected God and the way that he led God's people to reject God, it's going to have huge consequences. The entire household of Jeroboam is about to be wiped out. God told him there's going to be a new king. And when he arrives on the scene, you and your whole house will be replaced. At the end of chapter 14, we, we head from the north down to the south, and there we're, we kind of watched and studied the life of Rehoboam and his son Abijam and his son uh, Asa and learning through those episodes of these kings. We're not just studying history, but God really wants us to learn some helpful truth about him and about who he is. And through those kings, we didn't just you know, get to learn about Judah's kings and the cool stuff they did. Actually, there's an absence of that. It's one particular thing that God's trying to show us and teach us through his word. And that's what's here. God wants us to learn some amazing things, not about these kings who lived, you know, so, so mainly wickedly in his eyes. No, God wants us to learn through them about him. He teaches us through those kings and their lives and their rule that God is a God of judgment and he's a God of grace and he's an amazing God of hope. And this morning, now we're going to leave Judah and head back north to Israel and and, and I think we're going to see some amazing truth. We're going to learn that that God's word does come true. What God said in chapter 14 would happen, well, it's going to happen here in chapter 15. But we're not just here to learn that God's word is reliable, which it very much is. It's not just another example to teach us that our Bible is trustworthy, which, you know, it's that too. I believe through some repetition here, through some history that is, it is a little bit boring because we've already read it. We've experienced it. It's just more wicked kings being wicked. But I think we're going to learn that sin is so dull. It's so unoriginal. Sin is so predictable. Sin is so boring. It, it reminds us, though, that we're, we need to make sure that, that we aren't being deceived by sin. We need to make sure that no matter how much we think we're doing for 
God and for, for the Lord, we need to make sure, despite our good behavior and our church attendance and our obedience to our parents or whatever's on our list, despite the things that we believe we're doing for God, we need to make sure that we understand truly the consequences for sin. You and I need to see this morning this great truth that without a personal relationship with God, with Christ, without being made right in his eyes, without being declared righteous by his standards, if our sins are not forgiven by his son, we will face the judgment of God. If we don't actually know that we have new life in him, we risk a similar fate as those who openly reject God. Again, our our big idea without salvation, even those who serve God's purposes, even those who do amazing things for God, they will face God's judgment. We'll start in verse 25 of 1 Kings 15. This is God's word. It says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. That's again in the north. In the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Let's go a little bit further here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of uh, Hananiah, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I exalted you from the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, you've walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will consume Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Any one of Baasha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did in it and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? And Baasha slept with his fathers. That means he died and he was buried in Tirzah. And 
Elah and his son became king in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, also came against Baasha and his household, both because of the evil which he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he struck it down. It's not really that complicated as we look at these two kings. Nadab is just like his father. He gets to demonstrate that for two whole years. He's just like his dad. And I think for those two years that some in Israel maybe were wondering, what about chapter 14? They probably weren't wondering that, but they were wondering, what about the word of the Lord? What about what God had said about Jeroboam and his household? If you back up to chapter 14 and verse 9, this is what God said to Jeroboam. You have done more evil than all who were before you. You've gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. You've cast me behind your back. You threw me over your shoulder and you didn't even look back. God says to Jeroboam through his prophet, therefore, look, I'm bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free. I'll make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. You want to get all that gone, by the way. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. The Lord has spoken. So for two years, this is what's happening. You know, two years, that's a, that's a whole class of junior hires, right? That's, you know, nothing's happening here in Israel. Nothing that is until this Baasha shows up. Nadab's busy, he's distracted trying to get this town back from the Philistines, and apparently he's so distracted, so locked in on that town that he doesn't notice this Baasha character getting close to kill him. We want the details, of course. We'd love to know the story of how it happened and what took place, but God just wants us to know that Baasha assassinates him, and that's that. He takes the throne in verse 28 and verse 29 reminds us why all this is happening. The whole household of Jerusalem or Jeroboam is being wiped out according to the word of the Lord. This was judgment. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan. So lessons from an evil king. What can we learn here? Well, first, I think lesson number one is this. God's judgment can't be stopped. God's judgment can't be stopped. Wickedness and and sinfulness of Jeroboam, it it meets the judgment of God, and it just so happens to be from this man named Baasha. God has demonstrated so far in the Old Testament, it could have been a number of things. He could have brought upon this man to, to judge him. It could have been a plague. It could have been a storm. The ground could have opened up and swallowed him whole. It, it could have been any of that, but it was just as God said it would be in chapter 14, verse 14. It was a king. It was a man who would take his place. And this king's name is funny, but just so happens to be Baasha. And the close of chapter 15 here, it, it tells us that this king is no 
better. He's just as bad. He's just as wicked. He's just as sinful as Jeroboam. So God used an evil and wicked king to punish another evil king. Baasha is simply just an instrument in the hands of God here. He's the one to carry out God's good word. And these verses here that run all the way to verse 7 of chapter 16, they don't really tell us anything about Baasha. It's, it's boring. It's just more of the same. He's just like Jeroboam. So what does that tell us? Well, Jeroboam couldn't escape the judgment of God. Basha is not going to be able to outrun God's judgment either. There will be no excuses for him. It's 24 years of his life as king. We get no detail here. The only thing that matters is how God viewed him. And verse 34 makes it clear. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Another prophet announces the judgment that we heard about Jeroboam, the whole weird dogs and birds thing that kind of grosses us out, unless we've already had breakfast and then it's not so bad. But that's what's happening here, and it's just more of the same. I read this great sentence by one of my favorite preachers. He says, have you ever wondered why parts of the Bible are so boring, like this text? It's boring because there are records of sinful men who simply repeat the sins and evil of those before them. Sin is never creative. It's imitative. It's repetitious. Maybe you can sin with a flair, but you can't sin with freshness. You can only imitate what's already been done. Goodness, on the other hand, has an originality inherent in it, which evil hasn't got. Evil can distort and ruin and corrupt, and it's real good at reruns, but it can't be original. Evil is boring. And I think that's what's happening here. Baasha is just like Jeroboam. This sinful king is just like the sinful king before him. What a waste of time. What a waste of his life. So pointless, so empty, so unsatisfying, so joyless. Life apart from God, it's so useless. It's chasing after the wind. It's vanity. That's what, how Solomon described it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, without God, life has very little purpose. It's actually super boring. So what's the point? Well, the point is this. Live like Jeroboam. Meet an end like Jeroboam. Reject God. Face God's judgment. But is that all that God wants us to know? We've already learned that lesson. Why this repeat story? Why this whole, you know, whatever, 12 or 15 verses on this Baasha. Repetition is helpful. I'll be the first to admit that. I need lessons taught to me multiple times. I think that's really good, but I do believe there's something else here. Lesson number two is this. Doing godly things doesn't mean you're godly. Doing godly things doesn't mean you're godly. In other words, 
doing good things for God doesn't make you right with God. Doing good things for God doesn't make you right with God. Let's just get it straight for the record here. God declared that Jeroboam's house would be eliminated and that he would do it through another king. Okay, we understand that. Check mark. And this Baasha is that king. He carried out what God had determined should happen and would happen. Check mark. And yet verse 7 of verse chapter 16 says that Baasha acted wickedly both in his similar lifestyle to Jeroboam and did you catch the end? He's also being judged for what? For wiping out Jeroboam's line. He's also being judged for this evil thing. He's being judged for something that God wanted to happen. Isn't he, isn't he doing God's work here? Hold on a second. Shouldn't he be, I mean, given at least some credit with God? God uses evil men to punish evil men and later judges them for their evil acts. No, I think the whole point is this. Being used by God doesn't exempt you from anything. And I wonder if that isn't the message of the rule and reign of this King Baasha. He was used by God to bring judgment on God's people, but his acts put him in this, just the, the same boat as those evil men before him. So you may think it's an unnecessary story, an unnecessary illustration here for God to teach us. You may think that, you know, you're no evil king and you may be convinced you'll you'll never be used by God as an instrument of judgment on his people. And I think you're right. Uh, The chances of that seem humorously impossible you may be convinced that this king got what he deserved, that he acted wickedly and sinfully, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet I wonder what this king thought. I wonder what he said when he stood before God. I would bet anything that it was excuses and a resume of good deeds. I would bet anything that he stood before God and said, but God, didn't I do what you wanted me to do? Wasn't I used for you to accomplish this great purpose? I didn't know you wanted more. I thought we had a good thing going. I didn't know it wasn't enough. I did good for you, didn't I? We had a good run. I accomplished so much, so much for you. How can you still judge me? How can you not let me slide on this? How can I not get a a pass for all these things I did for you? I was so useful for you. In case you're wondering what God might have said, I, I actually know the answer. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, Baasha had no desire to live for God. He did evil in the sight of God, and he had a chance to change. He had the warning from that prophet named Jehu, but he didn't listen. He didn't repent. He didn't turn away from his evil ways. God gave him a chance, and Baasha rejected it. He didn't try to obey God at all. He just kept on going. Perhaps even convinced with the good things he'd done for God that he might get a pass at the end. He might have thought, I'm sure God will let me into heaven because I've done so much for him. The point of Baasha's rule and reign is that those who think that way will meet the same tragic end. You will hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. If you're bothered by that, and I think that you should be, let me leave you with something else that Jesus said. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus was talking about his life that was, would end on a cross. And he said, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. You don't need excuses. They're not going to work. And you don't need a resume of good deeds. It won't help you. You need faith in Christ. And you need to follow him to avoid God's judgment. Father, thank you for our time this morning. God, an interesting story of history, how you teach us through these kings and how you show us in your word, God, amazing truth. Lord, I pray that we would learn from this history that's old and distanced. God, I pray that you would help us to see its impact and significance still. Lord, it doesn't matter what good things we do. If we don't embrace the gospel, if we don't embrace your son, if we don't follow Christ and God believe in, in his death on the cross for our sin, we'll meet the same end as the most wicked and evilest kings that have ever lived. 
Father, thank you for that truth and reminder. Thank you for the gospel that's available today. And I I pray that these young teens would hear it. And God, I pray that they would want it. Pray that your work of salvation would have an impact on our junior high ministry this morning. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.